Our responses can be telling, and they can be more revealing than we know. Uh, think with me just for a moment about the word association game that sometimes we play. Uh, different variations on this, but it basically goes something like this. You're sitting with a group of people, maybe in a circle or at a table, and one person randomly just comes up with a word. And then the person sitting next to you, ticks to them, say it's you, then is called on to give Write down what is the first word that you associate with that word that they gave to you, and then you pass that on to the next person, and they take that word that they associated with your word, and then that gets passed on, and it goes on around the circle to everyone's amazement and amusement. Um, psychologists have taken that word association dynamic through the years and have tried to come up with different ways to plunge the, the depths of our subconscious um, in most cases, though, uh, reputable psychologists will, will usually tell you, you know, that's actually not all that helpful. Um, it's just a way too relative. Uh, it's, it's not a whole lot better than um, the inkblot test from uh, Rorschach from years ago that, uh, you know, it's just too subjective. Who, who says? Whose call is it? As to what interpretation, what word, what blot, what way of seeing that word or blot is the right one. Well, Jesus. Jesus comes into history uh, with his appearing, his, uh, his uh, mission, his ministry, his message, his person. Uh, all kinds of different responses to him then and, and, and today. Um, but unlike the word association games, and really unlike the inkblot tests, there's not a wide variety of okay responses. There's really only one. There's really only one that is appropriate to who he is. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we are moving on in our study here through the Gospel of Matthew and uh, Picking up where we left off last week, uh, Matthew uh, is the first of the canonical Gospels that we have, really the first of the Gospels that we have, Matthew, then Mark, and Luke, and John. Um, like I said, we're picking up where we left off. We stopped in verse 12 last week. I'm going to pick up in verse 13 in a way. We're actually going to read what we read last week and then keep going a little past, uh, right on through where we left off last week. So I'm actually going to start in Matthew 2, verse 1. Uh, Matthew 2, verse 1, and read down through the end of the chapter. So, Matthew 2, verse 1, follow along silently with me. Hear now God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him bring, him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. 
And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Would you pray with me? Lord, as the psalmist says, those who keep your testimonies are blessed. Those who seek you with their whole heart, who walk in your ways, who hear and heed your commands and precepts and keep them diligently, oh, our prayer is that you would make our ways steadfast. That we would learn, uh, as are described, your righteous rules fixing our eyes on your commandments, keeping our eyes on your statutes. Oh, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this account. We thank you for how it's been preserved through the years, such as your love for us, such as your knowledge of our need to, to know what it is that has taken place and the implications, and we ask now that you would help us to trace them out. Amen. Why such different responses to the Christ? Questions worth asking because uh, of who he is, the ruler of all, the king of kings, the lord of lords. You know, if he was just an ordinary child, uh, it really wouldn't matter a whole lot how his contemporaries received him, or anyone else uh, for that matter. But he's not an ordinary child. If he was just uh, another great historical figure, then it might be interesting maybe to us as to how he was received in, in those days, but ultimately, would it really change your Monday morning? No, but he's not just another historical figure. He is the fulcrum and focus of history itself. Uh, as, as Matthew began his gospel here in Matthew 1, chapter 
One, the book of the genealogy. You may remember weeks ago, we talked about how Matthew is intentional in his wording there to hearken our, the, the reader back to Genesis, in essence saying, this is the book of the beginnings. This is a new start that I'm presenting to you here. A new Genesis, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of David, David being the great king of Israel to whom God gave a promise that one day a, a ruler would come, a, grand, a greater ruler, a greater David, that his throne in a way would endure, David's throne in a way would endure forever. Or Abraham, the great patriarch, to whom God gave that promise that through his line, through his descendants, all the nations would be blessed. That Jesus is who we're reading of here in Matthew 2. Those things, those promises being fulfilled in him. You know, it's actually no surprise when you, when you think about it, who's walked into the room of history here. It's actually no surprise that, that there should be such radically different responses to him. There always have been, there always will be. But again, only one can be right. And I know I just said that, and you know, if we're coming from this from a postmodern standpoint and a pluralistic standpoint, and I've just thrown the gauntlet down and said there's only one right response. Yeah, that's right. And we need to reckon with that. Because he is the ruler of all. He's not, again, not just another historical figure, not just another person on the scene, but God himself in the flesh. We talked about this last week. So the star and what we see taking place with that, pointing us to the fact that he is the ruler of all creation. That's who has walked into the room, if you will. The magi in a way, metaphorically showing us that he is the king of all the nations. How does the star, how do the magi respond to his appearing? In a sense, both bowing down before him. Because he is the ruler of all. Because he is the ruler of all. Now that said, that's not the only response to his walking into the room, to his appearing, to his coming, entering into history. That's not the only response that we read about him in Matthew 2. Yes, some bow. But not all. There are other responses of which we read here of which we must beware. They are real, and the inclinations are right in our own hearts. Every one of us. Every one of us. Inclinations like this resistance and anger, fear and worry, ambivalence and boredom. All of those we see in this passage, other types of responses, all of those are inclinations of our own heart. All of those we need to beware of. Let's look at these in turn. First, the response of Herod. This is the response of anger and resistance, fury, I suppose you could say. What do we know of, of Herod and his reign? He was a brilliant administrator. He was also a, a master builder. You cannot go to that part of the world and spend much time there in Israel today and not see marks of Herod's reign and his building prowess everywhere you go. Ports, palaces, the restoration of the Jerusalem temple, fortresses, massive fortresses. Herod was also a paranoid, suspicious, violent, wicked man. He put his, who he said was, his favorite wife to death. Um, 
her grandmother, her mother, his brother-in-law, and three of his sons. It didn't matter if you're a friend. It didn't matter if you're your family. Hundreds of his subjects slaughtered. If he got a whiff, if he got a hint, if he got the faintest idea that his power was being threatened, that his control was in jeopardy. Other historical accounts outside of the, just the Gospels tell us that, in fact, Herod recognized towards the end of his life how the people really felt about him. And he had an, an inclination that when he died, nobody was really going to be too upset about it. So you know what he did? He gave orders. This is true. He gave orders that at the, at the time of his death, that nobles and dignitaries from around Judea would be rounded up in one central location and executed so that at the time of his death, there would be mourning. Now, fortunately, that order was countermanded, but that's what he wanted. And so what we read of here in Matthew 2 fits like a hand in a glove with what we know of this man. Absolutely so. What does he do? He gathers intel. He gathers information. He, he consults with the religious authorities. He brings in these strangers out from the east. He, so he gathers the information and he then executes a plan. He sends those strangers, he sends those magi to Bethlehem to find out what he wants to find out. And when that doesn't work, he sends his soldiers to take care of business. Why? What's going on here? Well, Matthew tells us, actually, really, they're in verse 3. So, well, let me get back up. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of, now get this, Herod the king... Behold, the wise men from the east come to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Oh, wait a minute. How many kings are there? When Herod the king, he says he's king, heard this, he was troubled, meaning he was stirred up, he was distressed, he was disturbed, deeply so with, within him. What, what we see going on here, Herod's response is, it points us to the insanity of sin. We're nuts. As sinful, fallen men and women, we are, we're just nuts. Spiritually, we're just nuts. Think, think with me, the insanity of sin. Why do we do what we do? We, what Herod's response here is crazy. If he believes the prophecy that he's just been told, then why bother with even resisting it? Why bother with, even, with this plot? Why, how could he think that he, as a mortal human being, is going to resist what Almighty God is going to do? if he actually believes the prophecy. But then on the other hand, if he doesn't believe the prophecy, why bother? It's the insanity. The insanity of our sins. It's also the other thing that we see in play here is, I alluded to this already, his desire, his desperate desire to be in control. He thought himself to be, the Romans had appointed him to be, and he thought himself to be the king of the Jews. And he was desperate to maintain that control. This is where you get this illusion an illusion quotation from Hosea 11, as Matthew gives us here. It's the uh, second already of these fulfillment quotations here in Matthew 2. Uh, Matthew 2, verses 14 and 15, he's quoted from Hosea 11 when he writes, uh, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by, by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is hearkening back to the Exodus. That's what, uh, that's what Matthew sees here. It's what Hosea ultimately saw there centuries before when he wrote what he wrote. Th this is hearkening back to the Exodus. Jesus being portrayed here, being put forward here as the ultimate Moses. 
the greater Moses, the greater deliverer, the greater redeemer from an enslavement much, much worse than the, than the Israelites ever could have experienced, but even that was real and pointing towards something else. Pharaoh, Herod, much like Pharaoh, desperate to do anything, that whatever it would take to maintain his control. But Jesus, in the midst of all of this, despite all of this, is the ruler of all. We need to beware resisting his rule. I was reading a few days ago of a, uh, of a Christmas pageant. This sounds almost like an oxymoron. A Christmas pageant gone bad. Um, I, I'm not making this up. Uh, this really, uh, not here, but some, some other church. Uh, so the little Magi boy uh, is kneeling there before the cradle. And he's got his shiny little box in his hand. And the time has come in the pageant for him to lay that down and get up and move away. Well, he, he's looking, and the, the people off stage can see, he's looking at this box, and he's getting really attached to this box. And he, yes, he does get up, but he's holding the box, and he's moving away with his little box. And, to which then the teacher from the side then comes over and says, Give Jesus your gift! No. And, and, then, and then the teacher, this is the drama of this must have been something, comes over and is now trying to work with the little magi to pry his fingers off of the shiny box. Give Jesus your gift. No! It's my shiny box. I'm keeping it. We're not much different, folks. Um, those, let me say one, an obvious point of application here. Um, sort of a soft pitch, but needed to be said. There are those still today who resist Jesus much like Herod did. Today, you can go to that part of the world and you can visit the ruins of the Herodian, this great mountain fortress just a few miles south of Jerusalem overlooking the little town of Bethlehem. It's in ruins. And it's where we found the bones of Herod. My friends, that's what awaits the tyrants of any kind who oppose this king. That's my first application. But here's the second one. In what ways are we doing the same? You know, kings have a funny way of demanding allegiance. And exclusively so. King Jesus demands our thoroughgoing, continual, exclusive allegiance. How do you get at that? Where am, how am I doing with that? Well, think with me just a moment. When you're making decisions, whether it comes to decisions regarding school, or your career, or finances, or relationships, whose desires matter most? Yours or his? It's not a bad way of getting to the core of some of these issues here. Uh, he is the ruler of all. We need to beware of resisting him. Secondly, uh, we see not just the response of resistance, we see another one, and that is the response of anxiety and worry and fear. How do we see this? You may be wondering, what's the response of the people, the general populace, the everyday man and woman there on the streets? We see in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Uh, what's going on here? Well, th these are not the kings. These are not the experts. These are not 
It's just the everyday person. So they're, they're, they're weighing what they're hearing. They're, they're, compare, they're, they're sharing one another's observations, reading the editorial, sharing their opinion pieces, and working themselves up into a panic as to what they fear could happen. Now, keeping in mind, that, that said, they do live under the reign of a tyrant. And tyrants being as tyrants are, Herod, yes, he was clever, and yes, he was gifted, but he was also vain. Um suspicious and violent. Put another way, if you're living under this man's reign, if you just gotta know if Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Um so what's going on here? They are terrified. They are troubled, they are scared, they are fearful. Um not with Herod, uh not for Herod, but of Herod and by Herod. They are preoccupied with their safety. What will this mean, is the question everyone's asking there in the streets and the homes of Jerusalem, in all the wrong ways. It's a good question to ask, but when you're asking it out of fear, what will this mean? They're seeing but partly. Now again, I need to be careful here in how strongly I put this, but because they did have reason for concern. I mean, this, is, this event is what led to the slaughter of the innocents, as is oftentimes referred to, down there in, in Bethlehem, just a few miles away. And uh, based on what we know of the, the size of the town of the time, the estimates, uh, scholars and historians are guessing some 20 to 30 little boys murdered um, because of this man's... In, um, incessant uh, clinging for control. And this is what takes us to the quotation here, the formula for quotation here from Jeremiah. And this is what Matthew uh, writes in verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this is pointing not to the Exodus, but to the Babylonian exile. And Rachel, metaphorically speaking, the, the, the one who is known as the, the mourning mother, I guess you could say, having died in, in childbirth um, centuries before, is, is weeping, mourning from the tomb as she sees her children, her descendants, dragged away into exile. The nation no more, destroyed. But even then, if you read Jeremiah 31, and Matthew seems to have this in mind. If you read it in context, even with all the horror of the exile, there was yet still hope because there was the promise of a return. And the same holds true here. Even in the midst of the horror of what was happening there in the streets and the homes of Bethlehem, there was still yet hope because that one, that one boy that Herod was after escaped. He was going to return. He is ruler of all. He is ruler of all. We need to beware of our fearful responses. You know, fear paralyzes, doesn't it? It mobilizes. Like, uh, like the roar of a tiger. 
imagine the scene, you know, that you have uh, uh, the prey. <laughs> it knows it's being stalked. It knows that big cat is somewhere out there. And then it hears that bone-chilling sound of the tiger roaring. Now, you would think that this prey would then hightail it, take off, you know, through the brush, up the tree, whatever it takes. But that's not what often happens. What often happens is that prey freezes at that sound. And then becomes what? Tiger food. Now, researchers have been, over the last few years, studying recordings. This is true. Uh, studying recordings of the, the sound of a tiger roar. And what they have learned is this, that there are sound waves that, yes, of course, we can hear some of them, but not all of them. There are some we can't hear but can feel. And those waves have a funny way of making us freeze, stunning us still, if you will. That seems to be what the research is bearing out. So then I ask this question, thinking about this passage. What are we listening to? What message are we listening to? Um, you, some of us perhaps know people like this. When it comes to the claims of Christ, and, and talking about the things of faith, and Christianity in particular, are all talk and no action. They're all show and no go. Always considering, always weighing. Always contemplate. Never finally yielding. Never actually trusting. Never actually turning. Never finally living for Christ. Out of fear. But it's not just fear that can keep us, that can stand as a barrier to beginning a life with Christ. It can also stand as a barrier to actually flourishing in our life with Christ. Growing in, in that relationship and following him. Think with me. I mean, think of the number of times, I've talked about decisions a moment ago, coming out another way here. Think of the number of times that we make decisions based on this criteria. What will they think of me? What might, what might the financial cost and discomfort and chaos might this bring into my life? How might this upset the cart? It's already precarious as it is. How might this just throw everything askew? That's all out of fear. Who are we listening to? Who's in control? Is there a king or not? Well, there is. He is the ruler of all. And we see here we need to beware of our fearful responses. One last thing. Uh, not only are we to be bewaring of a, of a response of, of uh, anger and resistance or fear and worry, but um, ambivalence and boredom. Verses 4 through 6. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he that's Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then the chief priests and the scribes went to Bethlehem searching for the king. Oh, wait, that's not in the text. It should have been. 
it should have been. Who are these men? The chief priests are of the Sadducean party. Uh, they are those who are mm, oh, relatively okay, more so than the others, with the Roman authorities and the Greek culture and wanting to do whatever it took to preserve their power and control, the little influence they had and their subset there in Judea. Uh, the scribes are the Bible teachers. These are the guys who are committed to Jewish traditional culture. You see what's going on here. You have the liberals and the conservatives. And Herod understands that if he can get them to agree on anything, if they speak the same message on anything, he knows it's true. He knows he can count on it. And so he calls them in, and they, they, what happens? They pass the Bible quiz. Yay! Get a ribbon. Great. And do nothing. They go home. They go home. You can imagine the, the conversation around the dinner table. The king wanted to see me. He wanted to hear what I had to say, and I told him. Yes. They knew, and yet did Oh, it was all well known here. They'd been to the Temple VBS. They were listening to all the right podcasts from the Gospel Coalition. They were reading all the great books, you know, the, the, the hip and trendy ones from Crossway and PNR and Airdman's and whatever. It had gone here. It had not reached here. It was in their mind, well known to the mind, but little felt in the heart. And this is where the kind of quotation comes into play in verse 23. I said kind, I'll explain in a minute. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this isn't exactly an exact quotation because there's not one like that in the Old Testament. It seems that what Matthew is doing is he's recognizing that this is a theme of the Old Testament that points in the direction of Jesus becoming a Nazarene. Why? Because Nazareth was this little out-of-the-way, nothing place, despised and rejected, like he would be. Jesus the Nazarene was not just a geographical reference. It was a slur. It was an insult. It was demeaning. That was its purpose. That's why his followers were called Nazarenes. Or followers of, or people of, the Nazarene. Jesus is the ruler of all. You need to beware of these kinds of ambivalent responses. I think of boredom. It's, it's kind of like that. How would you define boredom? Everything is dull. Life is uninteresting. My, my circumstances are just flat. Richard Winters written wonderfully about this in his book, Still Bored in a Cultural Entertainment. He writes of how it shows itself in our culture in so many ways. I suppose you could say in um, the extreme sports, just another titillation of some kind, or our addictions, or in all candor, and this seems to be increasing in, in the problem, 
the number of hours that we spend looking at screens of whatever size, ignoring the real people around us and the real life that we're supposed to be engaged in. Why? Because we're bored. And it's not just because life is monotonous. Boredom at its roots uh, is, is, it takes place and gets hold of our hearts when we, we don't have any purpose or meaning. We don't have any vision or direction for our lives. We don't see ourselves to be connected to a larger story and a larger something. And so we're what? We're just bored. It's possible to be bored with God. It's possible to hear the claims of the gospel and respond with, ah, I just glazed over. To hear the answer to the yearning of your heart and respond with a yawn. Actually, I said it's possible to be bored with God. I said it's possible to be bored with the gospel. It's possible to be bored with your idea of God. It's possible to be bored with your picture and your understanding of the gospel. Never, never with the real thing. So what's the answer? Open your eyes. See the beauty and the gifts of the Creator all around you. There's nothing in this world to be bored by. Open up His Word and read yourself into what it's saying. All the, the promises and the, the wonder of what's being conveyed here. Don't, don't settle for what others have communicated to you and what you just over the years have absorbed but never embraced for yourself. Go to Him and ask Him to help you with this. May I be bored no more. He's the ruler of all. Ambivalence is not a way to respond to him. These last few weeks as we've been here in, in Matthew 1 and, and 2, we've been kind of half-jokingly talking about how it's Christmas in May. Okay, so there are lots of traditions in terms of how we do Christmas, how we respond, how we greet the season, uh, and varying timetables, I suppose, in terms of how we, how we absorb it in our house, in our house, we do wait till the day after Thanksgiving before any Christmas music is allowed to be played. Um, but come Monday, you better count on the fact that the tree is up and the house is in full decor. Um, you think in terms of others, how, they, how we respond? Extroverts, right? Oh, man. I said we. I'm not a... That's not... No. They, extroverts, whoever you are, what? I don't understand you, but extroverts... Um, or just looking for the party, right? Can't wait to, to go. Uh, introverts, we're kind of looking for the corner. We just want to drink our punch. Um, the children, the children, of course, so taken, so, so taken with, with the music and the glitter and the gifts. And if we're honest, we adults in some ways are too. If you compare the cultures, the cultural responses and celebrations all around the world, the West, the East, through the centuries as well. It's fascinating. There's so much to learn there. With all those differences, there's really one theme. One theme. Which is really the way it is with all the great events of history and how we respond to them. 
It's basically one right way to respond to great, significant, historical events, especially when there's a moral element to them. You think like the, the abolition of the slave trade, or the eradication of polio, or, or the, the end of the Cold War. When we have this sense in, our, in, the, in the, the, our heart of hearts, in the depths of our soul, that this yes is right, and we, and we know that this is the way to respond to this in gladness and, and celebration, and to fail to do that, would be to miss it, would be to fail to understand, to fail to appreciate what is this happening. Well, oh my goodness. How much more so with the event of events, the coming of the Son of God, as us for us. He's the ruler of all. Jesus, as you, in a sense, come into the town, riding, walking into the town square, filled with the people. We can gauge the people's responses and how they greet you. And some, like Herod, are hostile and resist you. And some, like the, the everyday folks, are worried and fearful. And some, like the religious authorities, are bored and ambivalent. And some, like the Magi, and even the star, are filled with awe and wonder. And even though they don't know much, they act on what they know. And may that be us. May that be us. This is a familiar passage. To many of us in this room, may that may the familiarity not become a barrier. May its message not be lost on us. We have these signals here of who you are as the son of David and the son of Abraham and the ruler of creation, the ruler of the nations. We have hints here of the responses of what ought to be. We ask that you give us ears with which to hear and create those responses as they ought to be in our own lives. Your name we pray, O oh Jesus, O oh King of Kings, ruler of rulers. Amen.